We're going to win freaks. We're going to win situations. Volatile, hairy, a bit scary, but we're going to win. Things are happening. Things are happening. Seems like it might be uh, advantageous to produce stuff and not just dollars moving forward if you are the U.S. This room is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're right down the hall for me here at TFTC Studios at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas. They're building incredible financial products for Bitcoiners with security in mind. They have their vault product, which is two or three multi-sig quorum, a collaborative custody model where you hold two keys, Unchained holds one key. You always have complete control of your Bitcoin if you have your two keys. If you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum uh, to, to make sure that you can move your Bitcoin. They've open sourced that Vault product solution via Caravan. They're contributing to Bitcoin open source community and projects. They've got a R I R A. Not IRA, RIA. IRA? IRA. It's IRA. They've got an IRA product as well. You can roll over your, uh, your IRA into Bitcoin and do it in a way where you actually control the keys of, of your Bitcoin that you hold in your IRA, which is very important. Uh, they've got their lending platform, which allows you to use Bitcoin as collateral to get US dollar same day liquidity. And they're building out more and more products every day. They just did a, a massive. Overhaul too. Yeah, they had some scheduled maintenance earlier, earlier this week, um, and I think it's because they're upgrading some things uh, to to their products as well, making them stronger. They have a white glove concierge service will take you from zero to having a multi sig collaborative custody vault set up. You tell them the TFTC sent you. You're going to get fifty dollars off that package. That package includes multiple video conference calls. Uh, they're going to send you hardware wallets and then they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into your vault once you have it set up. Go check everything they have going on at unchained.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. There's a team behind Slush Pool, which is the, the, the first ever and oldest. Therefore, since it was the first and it's still around, it is the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's history. Uh, they're a team behind Brains OS Plus firmware, which allows you to stack more sats with your hash. You download the firmware on your ASIC if your ASIC is compatible, and it uh, it goes to the chips and finds the higher frequency chips on the hash board and focuses on them. It allows you to be more efficient, produce more hashes, and therefore produce more sats at the end of the day. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're using you're keeping you're keeping sats on the table. You're, you're missing out on potential sats flow, which you don't want to do. You want to increase your sats flow. So download Brains OS Plus firmware if you have an ASIC that is compatible with it. And they have insights.brains.com. That's brains with two I's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Insights.brains.com is your one-stop shop for all the data that you need in the mining industry. Hash rate, pool breakdown, hash value, Calling a hash price, but we're trying to meme hash value over hash price. Um, and what is the value per terahash produced? Um, what else they have? Their conference is canceled. They have principles. The EU put like a vax mandate on for people traveling in, in out of EU countries, and, and the brains team did not feel comfortable uh, coercing the, the participants and the people traveling to their their planned conference. That was supposed to be in June of this year. So they shut it down. 
very, very principled. Go check out everything they have going on at brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This trip is also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle, 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 Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform at no KYC, no AML. You use your Bitcoin as collateral to get stablecoin liquidity. You put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key, your counterparty in the trade holds another key and Hoddle, Hoddle holds a third key. You don't have control of your Bitcoin in this setup. However, you do have visibility into the wallet so you can ensure that your sats are not being rehypothecated. And as long as you're paying back your loan, plus the interest associated with it, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Alternatively, if you are a stablecoin person looking for liquidity, you put enter the other side of that that, uh, that marketplace, put your stablecoins up to be lent out, plus interest. Um, and so you, you get yield on your stablecoins. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D dot H-O-D-L, H-O-D-L dot com. To check this out again, no KYC, no AML. They're not going to snoop on your data. It's a pretty beautiful thing. This room is also brought to you by good friends at the Bitcoin 2022 conference coming up less than a month. We're weeks away uh, from the conference in Miami between April 6th and 9th. The 6th is Industry Day. You're a big player. Big player. You're going to want to be at Industry Day days two and three. Our general conference days, there's going to be many stages with very focused talks. They have their open source stage, the minor stage, the main stage. They're going to have CEOs from all across the industry flying in from all over the world. They have President Bukele giving a big announcement during the conference. Day four is a music festival. Uh, you get Steve Aoki, Run the Jewels, Logic. Uh, Tai Kawamoto is going to get up and, and do a set. He's going to sing a cappella in front of everybody. It's going to be a beautiful thing to close out the conference. Uh, happening in Miami, 6th and 9th. Get your tickets while you still can as we get closer to conference day. Those, those prices are going to rise. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful conference in Miami. Okay, go to b.tc b.tc slash conference. Use the code TFTC. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you're going to get 10% off. That's code TFTC. b.tc slash conference. Code TFTC. Last but not least, our friends at Fountain, our favorite uh, our favorite podcasting 2.0 app. I use it every day. I was listening to No Agenda on Fountain today. Uh, it was a a very good experience. It's, it's just nice to know that you, you load your, your fountain wallet up with sats and you're just streaming value to your favorite podcaster via podcasting 2.0. Thank you to all your freaks out there who stream us sats via podcasting 2.0. We really value your contributions to the value for value model. We like to think we're bringing you value via this podcast. So you guys sending us value back is just reinforcing. Uh, it's, it's very encouraging for us to know that, that some people are getting value out of this content that we're putting out here. Currently, Fountain is running a, a, a giveaway. Essentially, every new user that uh, is playing a TFTC podcast on this, this RSS feed uh, throughout the rest of the month, so the next two weeks, is going to receive 1,000 sats. So if you want to receive 1,000 sats, you go, you download the, the Fountain app, and you listen to TFTC, any episode, and they're going to send you a thousand sats within 24 hours. You'll also be able to reward. Uh, this is them talking to me. I'm not supposed to be reading this part. I will be able to reward a individual freak out there 
uh, a bonus prize of 50,000 sats, which will be announced and paid at the end of the month. Um, so yeah, we're going to do this. If you haven't downloaded the Fountain app yet, go download it. You're going to get 1,000 sats. It's between today, March 14th, and the end of the month, uh, March 31st. So we've got uh, 17 days, less than 17 days since we're, uh, we're, we're in the late afternoon here on March 14th. But go download the Fountain app. You can find it in, in the popular app stores. Listen to a TFTC episode. You're probably listening to this on some other podcasting app right now. If it's, if it's Spotify, Apple, what are you doing? You could be listening on Fountain and, and getting sats for doing so. Go download the Fountain app, get your sats. And then at the end of the month, we'll pick a, a bonus winner who's going to get 50,000 sats. Will it be you? We'll see. We'll see. I can only pick one of you freaks who downloads the Fountain app. So go download it. Love all y'all. <laughs> You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Bretton Woods 2, over. Team Bretton Woods 3. Team Bretton Woods 3. Where we don't have to meet at a, at a big hotel in, in New Hampshire. We can just run a full node and vote. Vote with some software. Heady times in the world, Alex Gladstein. Yeah, I would say a historic day for me to come back on the pod. Um, <laughs> really great to be here in, in Austin, the Bitcoin capital of the United States of America. Um, fabulous setup you've got here. And Thank uh, you. just such a great community. Um, grateful to Unchained for hosting a little book party for me last night and for the Human Rights Foundation. And excited to to dive into the topic du jour with you today. Well, the topic du jour, for any of you freaks who are unaware, I'm sure most of you are, at this current juncture, Saudi Arabia is in talks with China to begin pricing uh, sale oil sales to China in Yuan and allowing China to pay for that oil in Yuan, which is a direct attack on the petrodollar system, which is incredibly prescient that this is happening today. Again, like you said, because that's exactly what we were going to talk about today anyway, mm -hmm. when we planned this, this recording weeks ago. So things are happening fast. Yeah. It's a disruption of the international monetary order. Um, and as I was uh, telling Marty before the show, uh, what ended up happening wasn't planned, but it ended up happening was that I ended up producing a three-part series for Bitcoin Magazine, uh, which is really basically a short book in itself. It's it's these essays are very long and they take me many months to research, um, and I go down various rabbit holes. Uh, but essentially, uh, if you look at the three-part series I've done for Bitcoin Mag, starting with uncovering the hidden costs of the petrodollar, and then moving on to the end of super imperialism. And then my latest, which is the invisible cost uh, of war in the age of quantitative easing, which which we'll which we'll discuss. Uh, the whole point is that the world financial system uh, post Bretton Woods um, was kind of in two stages. Uh, the first one, forty four to seventy one, where the whole world used dollars as their savings account. Essentially, central banks would use dollars uh, redeemable for gold uh, at thirty five dollars an ounce. The system came under 
tremendous pressure in the 60s due to the United States' expenditures in Vietnam. And essentially there was a run on the dollar and Nixon decided to, instead of, he could have devalued the dollar, but leaders usually don't like to do that. It's very embarrassing. So instead he just closed the gold window and, and the dollar devalued anyway, but it, you know, it was, it was, it was a new, new era. So people call uh, 71 to today, Bretton Woods two essentially, where instead of a gold redeemability backing the dollar, there isn't any sort of commodity fix in all. Now, Analysts that I agree with, like uh, Luke Groman, have this theory that, and Lynn Alden and others have this theory that we we, we kind of moved into um, sort of a pseudo backing uh, with a different commodity, with oil. Mm-hmm. And in in seventy three and seventy four, as I discussed in my first essay, uh, Nixon and Kissinger were basically like, "Oh no, <laughs> like we've lost the backing of the dollar. The dollar was devaluing really rapidly. It, it lost half its value against the mark in like three or four years. It's it's really crazy how." week the dollar got in those first early years in the 70s and what had what was happening at the time was that the 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 oil exporting nations had become independent from their colonial masters and they had formed this thing called OPEC and Saudi Arabia was like the the swing producer and the kind of let's say the master of OPEC um, and this 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 coalition basically controlled more than 80% of all the oil that was being pumped out and they uh you know, as a result or as a reaction to the United States supporting Israel in the Yom Kippur War in 73, they they en- ended up raising the price of oil tremendously from, I think it was only a couple dollars uh, per barrel uh, 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 previous to, 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 to 73, 74, and it went all the way up to like $12. Ooh. So they had just this enormous amount of new wealth coming in. And Nixon and Kissinger hired this dude off Wall Street, a bond salesman called William Simon, to, to be the new treasury secretary and to figure something out. And they knew that he could sell bonds. And that's really what the United States needed to do. It needed to convince people that its bonds were still worth something. Um, that was the national security goal of the United States. It remains the goal today. And he managed to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, so Simon went to Jeddah, the crown prince came to DC. There was this whole song and dance. Nixon went to Saudi Arabia. It was a huge, huge deal. Um, and basically the, the petrodollar pact was was four elements. Uh, it was on their side, they would price oil in dollars. So you had to, if you were Malawi or you know, Bolivia or whatever, you couldn't use your own currency to pay for oil. You, you had to use dollars. So you had to go get dollars. So this created huge demand for dollars. And it also made a network effect where it just started to make sense to price everything in dollars. This is a huge, huge deal. And, you know, that was part one. Part two was that the, the dollars they would earn by selling oil, they would reinvest back into U.S. debt. So they would buy U.S. treasuries, things like that. And we would give them a discount on that debt. It was part of the deal that uh, was originally confidential and that was later leaked and then not leaked, but it was um, made public in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So those were that was their side of the deal. And our side of the deal was we would A, sell them tons of weapons at lower than market prices and B, protect them. And we have done so. We did so after the in, in, after Saddam invaded Kuwait in, in, in 1991. Um, and then we did so again, obviously, um, in, in 2003. You know, you can argue the Iraq war was really, uh, again, kind of a protection of this system, right? So, so the externalities have been vast. And uh, over time, the, the, the oil um, peg, we could say, uh, started to come under pressure. Like basically it was pretty good from the 70s until the mid 2000s, like uh, dollars and oil had a pretty tight correlation. 
uh, essentially, you know, dollars were pegged to oil. But after like the mid 2000s, um, you know, the price of oil went beyond $30 and then it like never went back. And and Luke Roman has a great conversation with on the Grant Williams show that just came out that you should all listen to. It's excellent that where he breaks this down, but essentially like oil went to like a hundred, if you it went to like $150 a barrel, it was insane. Mm -hmm. So, so it basically broke the peg. And, um, this happened at a time when the United States had invaded Iraq was, it was engaging in enormous new borrowing. Uh, there was like that kind of pressure on the dollar and then the great financial prices hit. So instead of like raising rates to try and like peg the dollar back to oil, we actually went to rates went to zero. So as Groman says, we, you know, what Volcker did at the end of the seventies, early eighties was he sacrificed the American economy, um, for the world, meaning like we, 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 we made the dollar the priority. So we raised rates all the way up to close to 20% to strengthen the dollar as the world reserve currency. And, and basically to back up what we promised to the world that we would, we would make the dollar strong. Bernanke in 08 did the opposite. He sacrificed the world reserve currency for the banks. So he saved the banks instead of the reserve currency. So we betrayed the world. It's an incredible story actually. And the, the, the reason I'm so interested in this process uh, through all of my writing is that is that what you start to see is that the United States, in order to achieve its foreign policy aims, needs buyers of its debt. And, and that was done um, pre-71. Uh, LBJ would call the West Germans and say, basically, you need to buy our debt. Um, and if you don't, we're going to pull out. This is this happened. So it's coercion. Obviously, the petrodollar pact, like you, Saudis, all you guys, OPEC, you're going to buy our debt. Then after they went broke, like basically the price of oil collapsed in the eighties, right? So we needed to find a new buyer, the Japanese. So the Plaza Accord and the Louvre Accord and these things in the eighties were, were, were partially an effort to force the new world's second largest economy to buy our debt. So mm -hmm. they started racking up our debt. And then uh, as, you, as you got through the late nineties, we needed a new buyer. We were getting we were getting a little thin. So this explains partially the induction of China into the World Trade Organization. And then between when they got in and started doing business with us at this huge scale, right, that they didn't before. And we, and they, you know, we, they basically started making all this stuff for Americans and started earning all these dollars. They started doing the recycling thing that I described before. So previously you had the oil sellers, recycling their profits back into U.S. debt. Now you had the Chinese doing it. So between 04 and 11, uh, the Chinese uh, went from having just like about $100 billion of treasuries to having more than a trillion. They like quadrupled their holdings in a short matter of years. But after the GFC, after kind of the Iraq war peak, Chinese other countries started to like balk at the dollar system. They were like, wait a second, this isn't sustainable. So, so 2011 was kind of the turning point after that, after people saw what the US government was willing to do during a crisis, that it was actually willing to, to sacrifice the dollar in order to please the banks and save the banks. Um, and that that this country was willing to borrow all this money to fight these wars abroad, which we'll get into. Um, what happened is that these countries start stopped their like accumulation of treasuries. So you had basically foreign buyers in the early 2000s, buying about 60% of our new debt that we issued for deficit spending. Mm -hmm. When I say deficit spending, what I'm referring to is just to be detailed here, like each year, the United States government has a certain amount of revenue through taxes and other streams. And then 
it has a budget and, and sometimes the budget's balanced, but other times we spend more than we bring in. And that deficit, um, which this year, uh, our revenue is 4.3 trillion and we're gonna spend 6 trillion. So we're gonna have about $1.7 trillion, give or take of new debt. That goes onto the debt pile, which is now 30, above 30 trillion, right? And you know the 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 essential idea um, is that this this debt is 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 very costly to service. Um, so the the argument of my my latest article is that in this macro environment where you have less and less buyers of our debt abroad, less external um, you know less external pressure, uh, you essentially have um, a situation where the world went from buying sixty percent of our debt to only forty percent today. So what has happened is that the Fed had to step in. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the Fed has engaged in this unbelievable intervention into the, into, into the bond markets. So between 08 and today, um, the last round of QE sort of quote unquote just ended a few days ago, but you know we all know it'll restart <laughs> sometime soon. No, they bought $8.9 trillion of securities, uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Since March, 2020, they've been buying about $4.7 million of these per minute. So, you know, what would the price of a 10-year treasury be had they bought zero instead of nine trillion? Nobody knows, but definitely not 0.08%, which is the the overnight rate today, the Fed funds rate. I mean, or, or you know, it's around 1.7% for, for a short-term treasury. Like these are artificially low prices due to government manipulation of the bond markets. Mm -hmm. And this is very important for the national security state, right? Because if, give you just to give you an example, like if rates on a pile of $30 trillion debt, if rates rise by 1%, like let's say they go to 1% from zero, um, that's $300 billion of, of, of new, of new, of new, you know, money that we owe bondholders, right? That's that's 300 billion. So if rates go to 3%, which would be like historically reasonable, okay, <laughs> now you're talking a trillion new dollars. So we only make $4 trillion a year in revenue this year. So you're talking potentially if rates go to 3%, like let's say if they keep hiking, like they say they're gonna do, you'd be talking a quarter of, of all of our income going to pay interest. It's so this is why the US government in the last 20 years, as the petrodollar system has been breaking down, has had to engage in all this in bond market intervention. This is why the Fed has this massive balance sheet. And I felt that that was a good way to open. Yeah, no, I mean, what you just described, essentially over the last three decades, the US has just been kicking the can down the road, going to Japan, like, all right, we'll work with you. Like, all right, well ran dry here. All right, China, come to the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. We're going to run with you. And 2008 happens. And like you said, that was an inflection point on the international stage where everybody's like, all right, we can't trust these guys to, to be the reserve currency. Let's start moving away. And this is where things get interesting. And, it, and I had Luke on. You mentioned Luke Roman mm -hmm. a few times throughout uh, that explanation. I had him on yesterday. And it's fascinating here in the United States so the people, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, the academic economists who got us into this mess, they are either intellectually incapable, there's too much pride to recognize the position that they've gotten us. And I think they all understand the position that we're in. They're just, it, it, it would be career suicide to admit it because you essentially, if you're Janet Yellen or Jerome Powell, you'd have to admit that your life's work was all bullshit. And what Luke said yesterday that was very interesting 
is that he has contacts that are in the def- Department of Defense and like it, who are wargaming like mm-hmm. the, the game theory of these geopolitical chess pieces that are being moved in the monetary realm right now. And he said the, the people in the Defense Department realize that we need to make a bold move and and move towards what you would describe as Bretton Woods three mm-hmm. and like pulling out a trump card. You have Saudi Arabia uh, cozying up with China. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious that they want to transition to a new reserve currency regime that that either uh, the yuan, the ruble, or combination of all are a part of. And America, if we want long-term sustainability, what we should do is pivot towards Bitcoin mm-hmm. and say, all right, uh, I know you guys want to do this, but we're going to go to this peer-to-peer distributed uh, yep. uh, open monetary network that is free market. Yeah, and look, the writing's been on the wall for a while. I, I did the petrodollar piece a year ago, and um, even then, like you could tell that, like, okay, India and China, India and Russia, the EU and Russia, they had started to think about doing trade in other currencies um, outside of the dollar. So you already, you know, you started to see the weakening. Obviously, Len Alden has a masterful piece on this, um, and now it's been expedited by two things, and 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 this is why people are saying Bretton Woods three started essentially in the days after um, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, And that's for two reasons. The first one and the most obvious one is the weaponization of FX reserves, which I I would imagine that most sovereigns thought could happen, but, and and we got a warning when we, when we stole the Afghans money, right? When we, we basically froze the, the, the deposits of the Afghan nation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This, this should have been a a signal to the rest of the world that that's what the U S was going to do. But it was, it's still been shocking for the world to see uh, America and its European allies freeze hundreds of billions of dollars of Russian savings, essentially, right? So now, um, and this is what Zolt, this guy Zoltan from Credit Suisse came out with this kind of amazing um, you know, note a few days ago that I thought was fake at first. You, <laughs> you know, thought that it, was fake? I, I literally, because he's such a respected guy on mm-hmm. Wall Street. Everybody says he's like, you know, the most important person studying money markets and all these things. And he writes this really breathtaking art, quick article about how it's Bretton Woods three, Bretton Woods two's done, um, you know, dollar-based liabilities as a savings account for a nation is is no longer an option for, for other sovereigns. They, they can't entirely rely on something that can be frozen. So he has this concept of inside and outside money. And he's basically saying the era of inside money being savings for, for com- competing countries is, is is coming to an end because they realize they need outside money. And of course, in his conception, among classical economic theory, that's gold. So gold is outside money. But as we know, Bitcoin is digital outside money. It's the only digital outside money. Every other digital asset has some sort of person in control or group in control or its issuance is gonna change or whatever. So so we have Bitcoin as the digital outside money. And indeed at the end of his note, he basically says, if Bitcoin, you know, if Bitcoin survives, it'll it'll benefit in this thing, which was a shocking thing to see from someone on who's that respected on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. But so so we're at this moment where we have the the end of the petrodollar system is being expedited by the weaponization of FX reserves, and and now like basically the the fraying of the the actual petrodollar mechanism itself. And it's important worth to you know worth noting that you know twenty five percent of all the oil that Saudi Arabia sells is to China. So if all of a sudden you have, and we don't know what's going to happen, but like if it does proceed in this direction 
and they start pricing and selling 25% of their exports in yuan instead of dollars, okay, then you have a whole range of new contracts and derivatives that are gonna be priced in yuan. And I'm not someone who believes the yuan will ever be the world reserve currency. It's not a freely tradable currency. They don't have open capital markets. Yeah, it can't work. If you think the Fed and the Treasury are messing up the dollar, I yeah, can't imagine I mean, what the CCP is no, going to well, do. Well, no, but like no one would, there's a reason why only 2% of reserves are held globally in yuan and, and only about that much trade is done in it. And it will increase, but it's because the markets don't trust the CCP. You know, like well, yeah. I don't blame them. And so, you know, what we're looking at in the in fiat land is just a, a you know, a more of a balanced picture that probably more accurately reflects the size of economies and the size of trade, as opposed to today, where we still have the remnants of this dollar hegemonic system, where even though the US has only whatever, 20% of GDP globally, we represent um, you know 40% of all debt and 60% of all reserves and 90% of all trade, like that system is coming, that system's coming to an end. It's, it's deteriorating, okay? And what we just have seen in the last few weeks are like, as Luke calls them, like really obvious signposts that things are starting to move more quickly maybe. I mean, it's definitely gonna, you're gonna have this gradually than suddenly thing. I, I appreciate the perspective of the dollar bulls that, that they point out correctly that, look, at times of panic, people still want dollars. It's the best of all the fiats. But that is, um, you know, that's something that gets eroded slowly over time. And eventually <laughs> there's gonna be a, a suddenly part. You know, yeah. and we don't know when that's going to be, but we have to be paying very close attention to this at this point. Yes. And so the dollar bulls, again, respect and understand their perspective as well. They focus on the technical mechanical aspect of it, like pure demand for dollars, but and they completely neglect the social aspect. And that's what leads to a rapid decline in confidence in the dollar is the social aspect of it. Like, do I believe that the U.S. government is going to be able to pay back these treasuries? Well, and our friend Nick Carter just made a joke about the dollar needs to find new token better tokenomics. Yeah, better tokenomics, and it's true. Like literally, what you need to remember is that the, the the literal mechanism that has underpinned dollar hegemony since the early '70s is coming undone. Like, and not just theoretically. Like the mechanism that I laid out, the four parts, the pact between the head of OPEC and the, the world's largest economy. The the key key part of that is that they price all oil sales in dollars we are potentially watching that just get wrecked. Like, so what, is, what are US policymakers to do? Now, Biden was, was discussing going to Saudi Arabia. Um, it doesn't look like he's actually gonna go. And instead, Xi Jinping's gonna go. So um, after Ramadan, so it'll be his first trip there since 2016. And I mean, it's a big, big deal. And, and I think this is sort of inevitable that like you start seeing China and Saudi Arabia and Russia and potentially India just doing more with one another just, you know, makes sense. I mean, for them, um, just to take a real, real, real politique view, like that, that would make sense. So for U.S. policymakers, we'll see. Um, but, but, you know, the, 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 the picture I wanted to dig into a little bit here on the show today was, was this idea of like, you know, one of the one of the reasons we've seen a decline in American power is that we we misused it at at our apex, in my opinion, by invading Iraq. Like, so this to me was, and you could argue Afghanistan, of course, is part of that, but really the invasion of Iraq is what sort of, I mean, I view it as an unethical an unethical war, and um, I view it as something that changed forever the course of not just the dollar but also the United States. Uh, not only not not just in how people view us as a nation. Um, you know, like even the most like uneducated person abroad 
knew at the time that like, oh, they're like going in for natural resources or money or something. Like it was, we were not looked upon fondly for, for during that time, <laughs> like from abroad, let's put it that way. Like Americans, when they were traveling at the time at the, you know, pretend to be Canadians. Like that's how unpopular we were because it was such a ridiculous war. I mean, to me, it was, it's similarly unethical to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Like it's, 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 we sent more than a million young Americans to the desert to, to fight for what? Like at the end of the day, as I, as I try to do in my research and writing, my, my, my argument is that it was, it was largely to protect this petrodollar system. Um, but again, this thing is collapsing and, you know, what has happened is that and this is where we'll get into the, the content of the, the third essay, <clears throat> The Invisible Cost of War in the Age of QE. I, I read two books at the beginning of this year that really made me think. Um, and I spent kind of two months fashioning this thesis around these, you know, content from these two books. Um, one was The Lords of Easy Money by Christopher Leonard, which mm -hmm. is about basically Greenspan economics and how the Fed made this decision in the 90s to focus on three things. Um, they would basically fight price consumer price inflation, they would ignore asset inflation and they would bail out the economy whenever it, it collapsed. And th that easy money monetary policy um, is, is one piece. And the other piece is a book called Taxing Wars by this uh, Air Force veteran named Sarah Kreps, who's at West Point and teaches at other universities. She wrote a phenomenal book about the history of war finance in the United States. And basically like how through the first two thirds of the 20th century, Americans paid for wars in a way that kind of had a democratic character to it. Like meaning that the people were very involved. Like the wars, World War I was paid 30% by taxes, World War II, 50%, Korea, 100%. So like Americans knew what was going on and they were paying for it. And these wars were, you know, popular is a tricky word, but they were generally supported by the public not just through taxes, but also through war bonds mm -hmm. or liberty bonds as they called them. <laughs> but I thought this was staggering, the stat. In World War II, Americans, 85 million Americans, half the country bought liberty bonds. And the, 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 in 2022 dollars, the amount it would be today about $3 trillion. So that's half of our, you know, basically half of our, our federal budget. So Americans really chipped in they had skin in the game. They were involved. They knew what was going on. The government was more transparent. So if you if you bought if, during World War II, if you bought if you contributed, um, uh, if you bought war bonds, the government would report back to you on what it bought. So there's this amazing story on the New York Fed's website about New York Fed employees who at the time were had raised the you know back then about eighty grand to to to, to contribute to the effort. The the army would get back to them and it told them we bought like this plane and this missile with huh. it. Nice. Which is, you know, like, again, um, well, all wars bad, but look, there are existential wars. There are just wars. You can certainly argue World War II was one of those. And Americans were, especially after Pearl Harbor getting attacked by the Japanese, Americans were generally speaking, willing to fight. Okay. Mm -hmm. You saw this recently, and there was a great uh, video of this U young UFC guy. And he was like, listen, if Putin comes over here, I'm gonna fuck him up. Yeah. Like no question, but I ain't going over there. You Bryce, know? Bryce Mitchell. Yeah. So, and that was the, I, I mean, Americans didn't want to get involved in, in World War II, but when, when the Japanese bombed us, totally changed the equation. People mm -hmm. were absolutely willing. Not only did they go conscription and they, like my grandfather was over there and like so many of our families were there, but we paid for it. Right. 
And the thing is, what Sarah Kreps realizes in her, her work is that politicians realized that taxing for wars was unpopular. Like eventually at Truman, like it was, you know, his downfall. And then when LBJ uh, tried to do a war tax for Vietnam, it led to his downfall. He ended up not seeking another term. It was so unpopular. We never did another war tax after 67. We haven't done one. So all of America's post-Vietnam wars especially the post 9-11 forever wars have, have not been financed by taxes or, or by war bonds. And that's just like a staggering thing to think about. Car, I think it's a good time to pull up the thread on the screen. Uh, yeah, we can start going through some numbers. Cause here. we got some uh, hard numbers on this and it, yeah, it's just. Yeah. So, so again, like the traditional way to finance wars was, was in, in large part through taxes and through war bonds. Today, we don't have either of those things. There was a short, there was a limited Patriot bond thing, but it, between 2001 and 2011, but it, it was a very, very minuscule part of the overall war on terror. But when we talk about the global war on terror and these wars in Asia um, and in the Middle East, uh, what's incredible is that um, instead of pay, paying as we go, which which has a cost, not we're paying principal and interest now, okay? So the interest payments alone that we've made towards the money that we borrowed to fight for these wars in Asia and, and the Middle East have amounted to $1 trillion. Mm -hmm. So Americans have paid a trillion dollars over the last 20 years uh, only on interest payments. Now let's think about what else we could have done with that trillion dollars. I mean, God, I mean, forget like, you know, I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. Maybe it's better domestic investment. Maybe it's tax breaks. Maybe it's God knows what. I mean, it doesn't, if you're Republican, Democrat, you'll you have different ideas on where to spend the money. But like the point is, um, that's insane, right? And and just to give context again, the federal budget this year is 6 trillion. So even if we stop these wars today, and, and I'll get into what those wars are in a second, but even if we stopped spending on them today, which, which is, partly impossible because one of the biggest costs is veteran benefits. We had, we had almost 3 million troops serve over overseas during this time. And they all are, you know, they deserve support from us for fighting for us. So even if we disagree with the fight, so so they're gonna get these benefits and, and those are gonna be in the trillions. So the deal is by 2020, rather by 2030, we'll have paid 2 trillion, even if we stop fighting today, and by 2050, we'll have paid six and a half trillion, which again is larger than our entire federal budget. It's it's crazy how just like the concept of trillions has become so and again normalized this is just and um, interest borrowing for the wars. Yes. For I mean, we that 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 leaves aside the whole like we don't know how we're going to pay for the entitlements. Yeah, that, that's Social a separate security, thing. Yeah, all of that shit. Yeah. Um, again, these 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 numbers to give the give the listener the the viewer context. Like again, like war used to be something that was like consciously paid for. People were involved. Like there was a debate, um, there was oversight, there was like public knowledge about the wars. There was a vote. Yeah, there were votes. Like again, 30, 30% of World War One paid for by taxes, 50% of World War II, 100% of the Korean War, 0% of Iraq and Afghanistan. Like just think about that. I think that's very powerful. Um, and Kreps, Sarah Kreps notes that it, it, in her research that wars that are paid for with tax increases are 20% less popular than wars that aren't. So that, that explains that those figures you're seeing there. Like politicians after, during Vietnam realized that, that it, it was suicide essentially. So much so that in 07, during the Iraq surge, 
a bunch of a bipartisan group of senators and congressmen got together and said, we should have a war tax. And Nancy Pelosi was basically like, no way, no way. <laughs> That's crazy. And they were laughed away. I mean, this is, this is crazy. So um, uh, again, no new war taxes uh, well, since 668, none. Well, let's pause here and dive yeah. into, so there's no overt war tax, right? Where you're like getting your tax bill and it's like, all right, right. I got to pay 2% for the you war. Would say, would say it. And but you are being taxed for these wars via inflation. I think that's like the important thing that like is just hidden in yes. the cost of inflation, which is you, you are like, even though you're not consciously uh, looking at a tax bill that says, all right, here's your social security tax. Here's your healthcare tax. Here's your war tax. And which would be, it's so weird how social we are well, and, and how it's all perception. Like we are paying the tax, but it's just not visible to us. Well, we call, we call them credit card wars. This is the age of credit card wars. And not only are they paid for by future generations by just pushing it off. And, and now, now we're paying P and I, we're paying an in, interest, we're paying those. But yes, you're right. Like, so what's happened over time is these, you know, these Greenspan monetary, easy monetary policies have resulted first and foremost in asset inflation, which causes huge inequality in society, massive. I mean, if you look at, um, I'll get into the numbers in a second, but causes big inequality. But also it opens the door for actual, like what they call, you know, uh, real economy inflation, whenever the government has to do actual spending, um, like for example, those stimmy checks, like, you know, <laughs> like you do trillions of dollars of that, it, it's gonna cause, like the crazy CPI we're seeing now, you know, it's historic, you know, highest since 40 years, since 40 years ago. The QE itself doesn't necessarily cause that, but it causes like wild asset inflation and encourages stock buybacks and all these things. But when you mix them together, when you have a government that's willing to sell bonds uh, to fight war and then have <laughs> with one hand and have the other arm of its government, the other hand, the Fed, buy those very things from the private sector, over time, this has consequences like, you know, and the goal again is just to artificially in a way, artificially in quotes, um, you know, drive the value up of U.S. debt and drive the because with a bond, the more valuable it is, the lower, lower the yield. So like basically you want these the U.S. government wants wants its debt to be really valuable so that that its borrowing cost can be very, very low, mm -hmm. like in a world where its securities we only have to pay one or two or 3% on them. We can fight a lot more forever wars that the public doesn't know about. But in a world where we're gonna go probably, where our debt's not gonna be at zero or one or 2%, but it's actually gonna probably be at three or four or five or 6%, all of a sudden it becomes impossible to fight these forever wars that nobody knows about. Maybe we just can't pay for them. And that's, that's, that's the kicker. Yeah, it's- Like each it's, percent matters and each hundred basis points I mean, is an is enormous cost. I mean, you know? we're, we're mathematically backed into the corner. We cannot get out of this corner. If if the interest rate goes too high, we essentially have to default on our debt or just drive it lower into negative territory. Yeah, and, and again, some of these numbers, like to give you an example of a war that's paid for in this way, uh, Operation Inherent Resolve, is a war that most people don't know about. It's it's a war that's been happening in three countries, Libya, Syria, Iraq. Obama started it, it's eight years old, and it's cost tens of billions of dollars. And there's 
the voters don't know about the sport. No. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I didn't know about the war and I'm like supposed to be an expert in this stuff. Didn't we used to have to vote to go to war? Like, wasn't there? Well, the, the whole, and we can pause here for a second. The whole point of Krebs's book is there's this thing called democratic peace theory. And the whole point of democratic peace theory, which I, you know, kind of used to subscribe to and, and still in a way do, is that democracies are less belligerent than dictatorships because there is like this back and forth with the people that you kind of have to have. Like, if, if your leaders do some unpopular war that you don't like, you're going to like vote them out. That's the whole point. That, that's what makes us different than Putin. That's, that's the hope, right? The problem is the flaw of democratic peace theory is fiat current, fiat central banking, basically, is my, is my thesis. Like, if the rulers can figure out a way to fight wars without, without taxation and without raising interest rates through QE— um, then it's kind of like the magic trick. They can pay for wars, you know, without really the population noticing, right? Because it's, it's as, you, as you say, the costs are hidden, right? And, you know, that's something that, you know, would be shocking to people throughout history. Like basically, if you looked at Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill or even Keynes himself, they all said, borrowing for war is a bad idea. They literally all say this, borrowing for war is a bad idea, especially if interest rates rise, but if you have to do it, you have to pair it with taxes. That was like the whole thing. Keynes had this whole book about how to pay for World War II and it was all about taxes, okay? It was his vision to like have more taxes. And that's indeed what happened, right? During that war. But if you have like a world where there are no taxes, um, you start to disassociate these wars from the people. So if Americans aren't paying for the wars, and if their children are, are no longer being conscripted into the wars, mm -hmm. we don't we no longer have the draft, right? And if more and more of the stuff's being done with robotics and AI and things like that, okay, drones, you start to have a population that's disconnected both in blood and treasure from the wars, and that's dangerous. And it, it, in my opinion, it erodes democracy. It becomes abstracted in every way. Totally. Like, and Pew did all this polling, like, all of us, some of us remember, I was, I was young, I was in high school when 9-11 happened and, and, and I, but I vividly remember the Iraq war and there, it was really unpopular among a certain segment of society for a few years. Um, like there were the biggest protests since Vietnam. It was constantly in the news and then, and you can be cynical about why, but like basically like 07, 08, it just started to, and a lot of this had to do with Obama being elected, right? But like, it just started to disappear as like a topic and by 11, 12, when Pew would run polling, people would basically say that war was not a part of their lives and wasn't really even a part of their discussions anymore. It certainly isn't today. So, um, so it's. I think it's dangerous, and I think that in we need a monetary standard. We need we need a financial system where governments like basically have to have some sort of consensual process with their people to fight wars. That's what I think's the right thing, and and we did have that at one point. Um, it, and it meant that like it had, things had to get real serious. Like imagine how willing today we are to like go fight these things around the world. We were unwilling to get involved with saving, stopping the freaking Holocaust basically until the Japanese bombed us. Like that's the threshold we had as a country because we weren't on this infinite fiat money standard. It's very expensive. And we knew that it was a big sacrifice. Today, we're just in a totally different mind frame as a country, meaning our policymakers, they know they can go and do all this stuff and it's gonna be hidden. And I just think this is such a huge problem for the United States. Well, then I completely agree. The warmongering, the war machine, the military industrial complex has gotten completely out of hand, in my opinion. I mean, 
the fact that there's essentially a genocide going on in Yemen right now that most people don't even know about uh-huh. that we're supporting. Through via, our support for Saudi Arabia. Via the army of Saudi Arabia. I read a stat the other day that there's there hundreds of thousands, I forget the exact number, hundreds of thousands of people have died in Yemen over the last X number of years, 70% of them being toddlers or children. That's like, an externality of the petrodollar system. Yeah. Um, so. Well, look, that, that gets to the question. Yeah. And this is something Bitcoiner talk about, talk about a lot. Yeah. Me and Bitcoin fixes this. And that, yeah. And does Bitcoin fix this? And, then, and this is where I think we have to be up front, like Bitcoin's not going to end wars, but I think it brings back the transparent cost of war that you've just mm-hmm. been describing that existed 70 years ago. Yeah, and this ago. is a big debate, but here are some facts. Like the reason why Britain and Germany left the gold standard in 1913 14 was to fight World War I, which was a monstrous war that really, I mean, it was just a total insane tragedy. There was no actual reason for these countries to fight each other and they killed millions, right? Um, and then the reason why the United States let, like basically ended Bretton Woods one and left the gold standard formally was to fight the Vietnam War. Um, so war and and constraint of money are, are very related. Like, like governments try to get around constraints in the same way that governments tried to get around the gold constraint, as I've described in the last 20 minutes, that they figured out how to get around the taxation constraint eventually by doing QE, which by the way, as was pointed out by Safe in his book, The Fiat Standard, the whole idea of QE of like governments buying their own bonds was was arguably invented by the British in World War One. They, they tried to do a bond sale and nobody wanted to buy them. So mm-hmm. they secretly bought it themselves, driving up the price of the bond and down the borrowing cost. And we the US did this in World War Two. If you want to look this up, yield curve control mm-hmm. is this idea of not just controlling the short-term price of debt, but also the long-term. And we we essentially pegged all treasuries at a particular amount so that so that we wouldn't owe a lot. And what, what happens as, as Lynn Alden talks a lot about in her work is that this is what's essentially known as financial repression. During times of yield curve control, if you hold any dollar-based assets, you just lose money. Like you're, 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 you're you know, it's negative. It's basically when the, when the interest rates um, are way below the inflation rate, you're just getting eaten alive. So anyone holding bonds or dollars in the forties was, was toast. And that could be a very similar situation come, you know, now, now is starting to resemble that in many ways. Cause we have what uh, CPI is about 8% and the, the fed funds rate is zero. So it's, I mean, CPI is 8% and that's, uh, that's, 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 under, that's, that's understating things. Yes. Like we don't have to get like, that's not right. rent. That's not, a Costco basket. That's just what they describe. Yes. Uh, it's, I mean, it's the melting ice cube that, that sailor describes, right? Like that's if you're holding right. these assets so, on your balance sheet. So my, and I get into this at the end of the essay, but basically like, I don't think that any kind of monetary standard ends all wars, but I think that these like exotic forever wars in age, in faraway places that don't mean a lot to the American people in a system that had more constraint, I just think my argument is they would be first on the chopping block. Like we'd be like, nope, we're not gonna do that anymore. And if you, what's interesting is, you know, you look at this from the progressive point of view and people are worried about, well, what about, oh my God, like what about entitlements? Well, guess what? Most entitlements are paid for by taxes. It has had nothing to do with the monetary system. Out of the four point whatever, three trillion uh, income that the United States government makes every year, most of that goes to pay for 
uh, entitlements straight away through payroll taxes and other things. If you actually look at the mechanics of where all the money comes from, I think that regardless of monetary standard, when you have a nation or a community, like they're, they're basically going to want whatever taxes they pay to go towards things like entitlement and, and domestic local infrastructure spending and not exotic forever wars. That's the point. Um, the forever wars as we know them would be impossible in a Bitcoin standard. That's the, that's the thesis. And we might be heading to a Bitcoin standard. Yeah. So let's talk to how, how do you see this playing out? Like the, the transition to a Bitcoin standard. So right now, obviously we have Saudi Arabia and China talking, Russia's mm -hmm. moving away. There's people are moving away from the dollar. Bretton Woods too is over as we've described. And what I think is going to happen is you're going to have like this ex Cambrian explosion of just fractured monetary, uh, a, like a, a fractured monetary system where people are buying things in yuan, rubles, dollars, right. pesos, whatever it may be. And then uh, over time, that's going to become so obviously filled with friction mm -hmm. that people are going to be like, okay, we need to consolidate on something. And, and then it's going to Cambrian explosion out and then pfft, suck back into Bitcoin slowly but surely over the course of this decade. Yeah, so there's two forces at work. Um, and, you know, as I, I mentioned this at the end of my petrodollar piece, but like scholars have pointed out four, four potential visions of the monetary future. One is essentially like dollar continues to be dominant. One is that um, we, we re go back into like a bipolar uh, world where let's say yuan dollar, okay? One is that we have like a Bancorp type money that we we internationally manage all together. This is like what Keynes proposed at Bretton Woods. Like a massive SDR. Basically, yeah. And, <laughs> and then one would be uh, essentially anarchy where like the, we'd all kind of in a depressionary kind of environment, all, all kind of retreat into autarky and like all would have our own thing. What I think scholars miss is is the fifth idea, which is which is the Bitcoin standard, right? So that's, that's my perspective is there's a fifth option. Um, and it's driven by by one thing mainly, not necessarily this, like this thing you're seeing where the Saudis are now dancing with the Chinese, like, you know, that that would result, that on its own would result maybe in a bipolar world uh, in terms of currency or even in a more autarkic world. But the 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 real thing that happened that, that points us more to the Bitcoin standard is the weaponization of FX reserves. Because if you're China or Russia, like if you're China and now you wanna invade Taiwan, you know that the moment you invade Taiwan, a trillion dollars of your assets are gonna get frozen. So all of these other countries, whether they be large or small, or even if they're allies of ours, even if you're Europe, they're thinking now, oh my God, like we don't actually own our savings. So inevitably you're going to see a diversification in the coming decade of central banks into outside money, into something that someone else, in, that is not a liability, into something that someone else doesn't control. Now. Is that gold? Um, is that some sort of commodity flow? Is that Bitcoin? We will see. But my thesis is that Bitcoin makes the most sense um, due to how flexible it is. Like Putin's got all this gold. It's in a basement in Moscow. It's not very practical. Like what, he's got to put on a truck to send to India to buy something. Like he could email it with Bitcoin. Like, <laughs> it's just like once you start grasping how revolutionary Bitcoin is, you start to see it fitting into this model. And look, the world's just, the, the answer, dear Bitcoiners is the world's not ready for Bitcoin yet. They don't get it. So even though we have these, like we were watching history happen, we're kind of like sitting here 
in our little bubble being like, wow, that would be a really interesting thing for Bitcoin to be used for. But like the world's just not ready for it yet. Bitcoin's not big enough. There's not enough liquidity. Not enough people trust it. It's just not right. It's not there yet. But as you know, Parker says, gradually then suddenly, like eventually yeah. it's going to be there and it's going to take its place. And my, my general thesis would be eventually central bank reserves are, are probably either Bitcoin dominant or even just fully BTC. And then everything else is built on top. I still think there'll be, of course, bond markets, stock markets, all kinds of debt instruments, all kinds of insurance that I think all that's still going to exist in a Bitcoin standard. It's just going to, there's just going to be like a, like a restraint. Yeah. There's going to be hard reserves that you can verify are there and mm -hmm. restrain yeah, easily. The, the expense. And, and, and I think the way it might pan out is, is you know, I've learned a lot of, about this possibility from uh, the research I did for the super, the super imperialism piece, which is, which is basically an essay about how did the U S government kill gold as, as a, as a competitor. Okay. To the dollar. And, you know, after world war one, there was this thing called the gold exchange standard, which really, um, reflected what, what Bretton Woods would be. And that's the idea of like a handful of people issuing liabilities that are pegged to a, a commodity, right? So don't use the gold itself, but you'd use dollars, which are pegged to gold, right? So what maybe happens here is like a Bitcoin exchange standard for certain countries. So maybe you'd have a country um, whose uh, liabilities are redeemable for some amount of Bitcoin, okay? Mm -hmm. Just like just like Bretton Woods, where let's say it's, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, you think about something like this, like a thousand dollars per hundred Satoshis, or you'd, you'd figure out some exchange rate like $35 per ounce of gold. And, you know, dollars would have to be redeemable at that rate. And if, if, if this would be agreed upon, it would cause a natural balancing of trade and, and, and harmony among nations, really. I mean, that, that's, that was the dream of the bank Corps. that, um, and Luke describes this well, like, and so does Lynn and many others, but like the, the, the general concept of trade is, is quite simple. Like if you're a country that's, uh, you know, basically if your exports um, are, are, are doing really well, you start to earn more money and then your money gets more valuable and then uh, your exports start to become less competitive and then you sell less. And it's all just a balancing act, like mm -hmm. international monetary flow is a natural balancing act except for the reserve currency. This is the Triffin dilemma, except for the dollar right now. We are in this unique position where like the more powerful the dollar gets, the more debt we have. It's the total opposite. For any other country, the more valuable their currency gets, the less competitive their exports get. And it, it's a natural balancing act. It, it, it's, a, it's something that like ebbs and flows. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually kind of a beautiful thing when you think about it. But this, I, this dollar structure has ruined that for us at least, and everybody else needs dollars. So we have this, you look at any of these graphs of like uh, net net import export position. And it's like, we're kind of balanced until the petrodollar system begins. And then it's like, <laughs> it's, it's insane. Um, so, you know, we the idea would be moving back to some sort of standard where there are still obviously dominant nations and there are still fiats that are more dominant than others, but they're like kind of pegged to some amount of Bitcoin. So, you know, I think that countries like the United States, China, Russia will eventually have to establish a Bitcoin position, potentially through a national mining um, effort, potentially through just straight, like they might just spend their fiat down and buy Bitcoin. This is, this is what like, you know, what countries like Russia would do 
the reason, so the government was printing rubles to buy to buy gold off the private market, right? Yes. You know, so you, you might see that, and of course, we all know what happens to the Bitcoin price in this in this circumstance. But like, I just view that as inevitable. I think that that's so obvious that that's eventually going to happen. But I think so. I think it's inevitable too. However, I don't think that like, in the U.S. particularly, again, I don't think the Treasury or the Fed is ever going to muster up the the confidence to do that because they're so hubristic and egotistical and worried about their reputation. But I do think, so I, so what you just described there, mm-hmm. Hal Finney wrote about it in December, 2010, the free banking system, essentially. So I, I, I think I would, where I would sort of differ from the explanation that you laid out mm-hmm. is I think we'll see the free market create these, these basically, uh, currencies, or money is on top of Bitcoin. Like paper Bitcoin, basically. In a free banking type system. Yeah. We've had free banking exist in Canada in the 1800s, Scotland as well. And Bitcoin actually does provide the perfect reserve asset to try to restart a free banking system globally. And and, and so what I think is going to happen here in the United States and already is happening, and most people don't realize it yet, is the energy sector is, is it's going to force the issue. It's going to force... America to, to adopt a Bitcoin standard because Bitcoin mining, like you just said, we don't need a national mining uh, effort. What we just need to do is keep allowing the the private sector um, it, to integrate Bitcoin mining operations into their stack. They're going to start getting Bitcoin as treasury uh, as a treasury asset on mm-hmm. their balance sheets, and then uh, particularly oil and gas companies are. are the ones that I've spoken to that are most mm-hmm. open to this, they'll start like asking to get paid in Bitcoin. They'll, yes. they'll realize the value of their natural gas getting converted into sats and see how much more value yeah, that's and driving. Then this, the equities in these companies will rise over yes, time. Yes, yeah. and then they'll and, and then energy is the the base of yeah. what we have today. And like it's going to be extremely hard for the U.S. government to go to the people providing. The country with energy and say, "Hey, you got to stop this Bitcoin thing." They're gonna be like, "Hey, we're providing energy, and this Bitcoin thing is really good for our business. Like, mm-hmm. you really do not want well, to prevent us from." Doing I, this. I think short term, you're exactly right that 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 will happen. But let's be realistic: not every country is a free market no. capitalist structure, and a lot of these countries are going to have um, coercive or not. No, we've have, already seen gonna, it, Venezuela. They're, yeah, they're going to have nationalized mining operations now in. The other thing to think about is that um, yeah, that was a that was a purely American perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. also it could. I mean, look, look, the EU didn't shoot itself in the face yesterday, and they they did not ban proof of work. So maybe you'll see some European innovation. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this whole thing with the invasion of Ukraine has been quite instructive for the German people in terms of like they need energy sovereignty and they need to innovate in this area. And I think people will figure out that. It, it, if they're just smart and and self-interested, they will figure out that Bitcoin mining is a very important part of any innovative electric grid. Like this is just key. So um, you'll see, I think, more come online there as well. And 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 we'll have to we'll have to see. But that's that's short term. Longer term, you start thinking about taxation, right? So longer term, it's like, well, the state um, at some point is not going to want. It's not necessary. I mean even though that the collection of taxation and fiat drives the value of that fiat, eventually it's going to also want your Bitcoin, right? So, so when we talk about a state, even a, even a, even the United States fed, like building up a reserve, 
I mean, it may do that in two ways. So first of all, it's got all this Bitcoin from the Bitfinex hack. Like we don't, that's, you know. What is gonna like, happen with that? But like technically that's currently on the US government's balance sheet. Like, are they gonna give it to, to you know, the, the Bitfinex company made is whole because of this Leo token thing. So that, you know, it made whole, it made people who chose to to, to go that route well, whole. And we'll see, you know. There's a number of, there's a number of things to consider with this. Uh, what is it? 90,564 Bitcoin, I believe. It's, it's a massive amount of Billions Bitcoin. of dollars of Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, Bitfinex and the U.S. government do not like each other. Uh-huh. They, uh, they are embroiled we'll in, in, in battles over Tether specifically. Like you said, people were made whole. I think Bit, like if we're just, it's Bitfinex is Bitcoin, they should get it back. But I, I do see it as a political chess piece that the U.S. may just be like, sorry, Bitfinex, we're well, going to this. It'll be so interesting to watch what they do because if they don't decide, and this will happen probably in the next 12 months, if they don't decide, if they decide for whatever reason they're not giving it back to Bitfinex, okay, are they going to sell it for their own fiat currency, which would be a really, obviously, we, you and I would think that would be a dumb decision for them, um, but they might, which would indicate they haven't figured it out yet. I mean, they've or done, they just hold it. They've already done it before. Like the Silk Road coins, they sold 30,000 of them at $300. Yeah, but <laughs> look, I, I will be generous with people who didn't understand Bitcoin pre a couple of years ago. Yes. You know what I mean? It was so risky then. I mean, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I'm saying hopefully yeah. the Silk Road auction is a massive lesson for these people and at, at that in, in the government where they're like, all right, we sold all this at 300. Now it's hovering right. around 40K. Like Either way, what I'm saying is there's different ways that the US government may build a position. It, it might be through confiscation and crime enforcement. It might be through mining. It might just be through taxation. Like again, if you're a citizen and you have the option, you're you're never going to choose willingly though to pay your taxes in Bitcoin. Like I would imagine. No, if, that's if you, if you could, if you had the option of having fiat also. Yeah, yeah. So they they may offer a discount. So what what I generally predict is like, and and the reason why I don't think that we go the the fate of gold. Like gold failed because it became centralized in the hands of custodians and governments, and <clears throat> was unable to be a restraint on spending. The reason why I think Bitcoin's different is because it's actually held by the people, not by governments. It's it's that's why that not your keys thing is so important. That's why it was so ingrained in whatever Satoshi wrote. Not your keys, not your coins. Not your keys, not your coins. Get your, your Bitcoin off the exchanges. Get them off the exchanges. I mean, we need you to because this is how we defend ourselves from this happening again. But if we are sufficiently in control, the people, the users, the the people of the world control this thing, then then there is no possibility for demonetization. Uh we we have a shield to to defend ourselves. And, and that's kind of what really drives this idea of the Bitcoin peace theory is that um, it, it's not this thing where the, you know, Europe and the, in America, they were, oh, we'll just go off the gold standard. You won't be able to just go off the Bitcoin standard. That's not how it'll work because you won't own all the gold. You won't own all the Bitcoin. So you won't be able to do that. You'll be like actually limited. So we may actually live in this world where policymakers are actually limited by the monetary system because they don't control it, which is a beautiful thing in my, in my view. It'll force them to be better governors. It'll force them to be more responsible and especially with regard to war. So that's kind of the thesis. And I think what drives that eventually is merchant adoption. Like basically we're already starting to see this, but what, what, what brings Bitcoin out of just a simple store of value technology into an actual currency, a money that we use is merchant adoption, is merchants saying, you know what, I don't want your dollars. I would rather have your Bitcoin. This is Thier's law. It's like the opposite of Gresham's law, right? This is actually where the good money drives out the bad. Mm -hmm. You see this in dollarizing countries, right? And this is kind of where I see us eventually going is merchants saying, you know what, like I'll even take a discount. I'd rather have discounted Bitcoin than full price fiat. 
Like this is wh what may eventually start to happen around the world. Um, and, and at this point, you know, it starts to really be, things start to really move fast. Um, you start to really think about what happens in a country like Venezuela, where people are like, oh, I don't really want the Bolivars. I want to be paid in dollars. I don't care. Like, mm. I don't want any, any, no amount of Bolivars will help here. Like not accepted anymore. Not even trillions. Yeah. You're going to have in the next five, 10 years, tons of businesses in the United States that basically are like, I don't want any dollars. I only want to be paid in Bitcoin, right? You know, pay me in Bitcoin is going to become like more of an obvious thing. So that's, that's this long-term backdrop to what I've been trying to describe. But essentially, you know, the idea is that both state, state actors and non-state actors start moving more towards a Bitcoin monetary standard. And I, I think it helps address uh, the risks, the anti the undemocratic risks of what fiat central banking has done to democracy with regard to these forever wars. And ironically, and I, a lot of Bitcoiners obviously would disagree with me, but I, I think it actually strengthens democracy rather than, rather than, you know, dilutes it into some sort of a, you know, like city state thing. And I, I, I appreciate that perspective from, from a lot of people in the community. They think we're going to go into like a kind of a, a, a fractured kind of localized thing, which which may certainly happen. I'm one of those people. Yeah, yeah, but but like it also just if we're going to have democracies at at scale, this makes them more responsible. Like it limits what they can do, which I'm quite excited about. So that's the yes. kind of the idea of Bitcoin peace theory is is it is it prevents unnecessary wars. Yeah. yeah. And for people saying like Bitcoin can never do this, Bitcoin can't work. It it doesn't work. What do they need to do? You read the book. Check your financial privilege. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to um, <clears throat> say that I published this book. Again, it has some of the chapters, some of the chapters reflect some of the writings that we've been discussing here. What's it like writing a book? Yeah, I mean, I know you participated in a little Bitcoin book, but this, yeah. is, this is you. No, this was my book. Uh, it's hard work. It takes uh, an enormous amount of time and it relies on the generosity of so many other people. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote this book, this is a book that's a collection of my reporting from around the world that looks at um, financial repression, monetary history, and global Bitcoin adoption um, over the last two years. And this book is is the product of, yes, a lot of my like burning the midnight oil or, or you know, early in the morning, late at night, like whenever I can, mm -hmm. just reading books, uh, taking advantage. Thank you very much for SciHub. SciHub's amazing. Uh, SciHub is a, is a resource, just if you don't know, that is run by a communist in, in Kazakhstan who makes it, uh, JSTOR articles and research papers available for free to everybody. And I think it's an amazing gift to the world. And she runs on Bitcoin because she doesn't, her bank accounts got screwed up. Um, so you should donate to SciHub. I think it's important, but it, it gives me the ability to like, for example, I can read a paper on German macroeconomic policy in 1963. Like I can, you can go and do that through JSTOR. Like it's impossible otherwise. They drove Aaron Schwartz to, yeah. to suicide I mean, for trying to democratize this information. People are monsters. So, yeah. so Sci-Hub, um, just many books, many, many JSTOR articles, and then interviews. Like the, the generosity of so many people around the world who gave me their time and perspective and told me about why money was broken and why did they turn to Bitcoin? So the book goes through stories from Nigeria and Palestine and Cuba and Sudan and Afghanistan and El Salvador and so many other places. Um, and, and I try to kind of, uh, basically pair, um, this idea of like checking your financial privilege, which is basically like, you know, look, you're probably someone who was born into, you know, a premium, uh, fiat currency <clears throat> and everything kind of probably works for you. But like, that's not the case for like most people around the world. Most people are either born into 
an authoritarian regime, uh, or a weaker currency. And for them, like Bitcoin is, is, has been like very, very, very powerful, and it will continue to be very, very powerful. I mean, just think about like its impact in Ukraine and Russia right now. So um, the book is uh, uh, really proud to have it out. Uh, again, it's to the thanks of so many people who've supported me on the journey, including you, Marty and Matt and your team. Um, and be doing a book party and signing at Bitcoin 2022. Um, and we'll be, we'll, be, we'll be shilling it. One thing that's really cool is that we're turning the opening chapter uh, into an, an short animation, an animated short which will, I think, debut at the conference or around then. Hell yeah. So we're working on that. And I have the voices of the actual people who are in the story. It's, it's, gonna, be, it's gonna be very cool. So we've got that coming. Um, and yeah, I, I, look, it's a book that's for curious minds that wanna learn more about the actual impact this thing is having outside, outside of our country. I do have a whole chapter about the United States. Um, I interview Isaiah Jackson and, and uh, someone who immigrated to our country recently. And we talk about how Bitcoin is actually uh, quite an, uh, quite a really strong um, kind of affirmation of American values of free speech, property, private property, and open capital markets. And we talk about how Bitcoin is, is actually really American at its roots. Mm -hmm. America, the idea, not America, the execution, right? So, yeah. you know, this whole Nixon and Kissinger petrodollar bullshit, like that's not American. No. The Washington and Jefferson would have said, fuck that. So, so, you know, we got Jefferson's the ordeal of liberty right here. And yeah, I mean, the founding fathers were very suspicious of centrally planned money. So it's like, okay, you know, and I know Hamilton's been lionized lately with through the play and everything. It's a great play. Um, but, you know, he was in the minority camp, this, these people that wanted to have total control over all the money. A lot of the founders were like, nah. So I look in one of the chapters looks into this and we talk about how Bitcoin maybe can even improve some of the things that, that America has have gone wrong here too. So it's not just, you know, in dictatorships far away. Bitcoin's having a huge impact in in cities across the United States and communities here, obviously. So so it's a it's a global book. It's a global book. Yeah. Go you can pick it up on Amazon. Yep. It'll be out soon. Uh, in a couple of days, it'll be available on the Bitcoin magazine website and you, you'll be able to buy in Bitcoin. Boss. Um, which obviously would be cool. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is a book that you can hand to people who Refuse to see the value in Bitcoin, especially when we talk about Bitcoin mining. If you don't understand that Bitcoin is valuable, then you're you're of course going to think it's a waste of energy or electricity. So this is the this is step one. You have to understand that Bitcoin is a humanitarian tool, and it's being used by tens of millions of people around the world who are are, are who don't have the privilege you do. Once you are there, then we can have adult conversations about Bitcoin, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it desperately. It provides desperately needed utility that does not exist outside of the Bitcoin. I mean, it's world. very simple. How are you going to send money to your family in Russia right now? You can't, okay? Yeah. You can with Bitcoin. So it's like, you know, I think it's just time for people to start acknowledging this stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, it also, you know, it, it, it hits the margins of this story I've been telling, you know, today about the history of money and where we're headed. And um, ultimately, and what we can conclude with this, like I, I think it's deeply unfair that 4% of the world's population controls the money for everybody. And Jack Dorsey said this in his recent interview with Michael Saylor. If you, if you listen carefully, he, he basically said he didn't think it was fair for Nigerians that they be, they be basically controlled by decisions of a small group of elites in Washington. Yeah. The people who sit around the table at the Fed, 
people aren't even really elected essentially, and, and they get to set the price of money for the whole world. This is insane. So, so in a hundred years, we're going to look back at that and say like, this was crazy. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's, it's how it works. And it's, you know, it's deeply self interest Like they, they will do what the elites in America want. Screw everybody else. As Nixon yeah. famously said, I don't give a shit about the lira. He said that after they, after when they closed the gold standard. So the book, like ultimately, yes, it's about like sympathizing with your fellow human around the world, but it's also this deep reflection on what it's been like to be someone who's been a beneficiary of the dollar hegemonic system and knowing and trying to be humble about the fact that that's going to come to an end. Yeah. Where do we want to go moving forward? We're essentially Bitcoin allows us to transition to a new incentive system. If you really just want to distill it to what it is at the end of the day, an incentive system that does not allow for the petrodollar system that we've lived under over the last number of decades to, to proliferate and perturb the balance of the world the way it has. Yeah, let's go back to a system that Adams and Jefferson would have appreciated and not one that Nixon and Kissinger came up with. Yeah. Right? I and mean, that's really what it's all about. Let's do it. Well, Alex, it's always a pleasure to speak Dude, with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, we're, uh, we're gonna have to do it again. We got the studio here now. And I'll be coming to Austin a couple times a year. So we'll do a lot of live shows. Oh yeah. Um, I know you have to get, you, you guys are doing a presentation soon at South by Southwest, right? Yeah, we got a couple panels here. Um, we're bringing the topic of freedom, you know, uh, to the crowds. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's exciting to be here. Uh, we come every year, but, but I intend to, to do more with, with the, the community here. It's just so supportive and it's great. I mean, Bitcoin Commons is an incredible space you guys have here. Um, but, um, you know, thanks again. And I look forward to seeing you in Miami. All right. Well, we'll see you in Miami. Go buy the book. Peace and love, freaks.